Greetings and welcome to episode 2.16 of my podcast. This is the final episode of season 2. There's a lot to cover, a lot has happened, and I've had many thoughts about what I want to include in this final episode. First of all, I want to thank anyone who's ever listened to any of my episodes. There have been more than 5,000 individual downloads. That number excludes partial requests, bots, or duplicate IDs. So it means at least 5,020 listens for a podcast that's a humble one, mainly just me talking for now, without any frills. That's an achievement I'm very happy about. I had no idea there had been so many listens. 5,000 listens since the 24th of March, 2020. Now, where should I start with everything else? First of all, how are you? I hope you're well. I hope you're going to have a good Christmas time. For various reasons, I've needed to think about traffic accidents and disappearances of people without trace more than usual lately. I had some work-related projects that made that necessary, and then I ended up seeing various news articles about things like this. I despise drunk drivers with a cold fury and an unforgiving fury because there's never any excuse for anyone to drive when their capacity to drive has been compromised. A recent traffic accident here in Finland claimed the lives of an 80-year-old couple who did nothing wrong. They were in their lane. They had always driven carefully and conscientiously. The drunk driver most likely fell asleep at the wheel and plowed into their car head-on at 120 kilometers per hour. They never had a chance. In that kind of situation, it doesn't matter if you're James Bond, you're dead or mangled. In real life, no matter what kind of reflexes you have, if you are on a stretch of road where there's no room to maneuver, or even if there were, the accident might go in such a way that you think the other car is just going to pass you by on their own lane, but at the last moment swerves into your car, we aren't superheroes. And in real life, James Bond would have been dead a thousand times over. Hollywood films, of course, are built on everyone always getting the lucky break. Another case I read about involved an adult son of a mother disappearing without trace. The last that was heard of him, he was getting off a bus in some remote rural place. He was on his way to meet his girlfriend and nothing was ever heard of him again. That was several years ago. My meaning by talking about this is not to depress anyone, but with the idea that our subconscious minds remember commands or directions we can give them. I just want to say, always make the safer choice in traffic, please. And of course, in every other situation. Some events are such that no action can save you. 
like what happened to that elderly couple. But for example, if you're in traffic and you find your attention drifting, that you're getting a bit careless, then yes, do snap yourself to attention. I know it can happen subtly, especially during long drives, but I felt that if I say this, it might be a thought that occurs to someone while in traffic or in some other situation that has some danger involved in it in some way. Maybe they'll remember. Maybe these words will echo in that moment. At least that's my hope. You know, in life it's often necessary to go through it with a kind of shell around you. You have to concentrate on getting your life forward, getting through the tasks to get from one day to the other, work and other responsibilities. And after a while it can become an unreal feeling haze. But then something will happen, maybe overnight, maybe when you wake up one morning, you'll feel that the fog has suddenly lifted and you become aware of the fragility of human life and with a great empathy for the losses that people endure, grief and suffering that you wish you could take away, for example, from your parents or other loved ones. And sometimes I have these moments of just wanting to remind everyone to please take care because those moments that we can't tell beforehand are actual crossroads in time. When they happen, the difference between life and death, or being able to walk for the rest of your life, or ending up in a wheelchair, can be a fraction of a second, and can depend on 10% more attention than you might have been having. Don't fiddle with the phones. Leave the phones alone while driving, please. And don't do anything else that takes your attention away from driving, for example. Everyone who's ever been in a traffic accident has believed that they won't be unlucky. They've thought that they can do this other thing with their other hand. They can take their eyes off the road just for a moment. No one has thought that I'm actually heading into a moment that may end up with my body damaged beyond repair. That was very dark, and now I'm going to move on to much brighter topics. Big news about David Lynch. A while ago it became known that he is working on a new series for Netflix called Wisteria. He'll be both writing and directing, and that's the best possible news regarding a new TV series that I can think of. It's also been so long since my last episode that, since then, I've published another book it's called Art and Love, Volume 1, and it is the first of a series. This is one of my legacy creations, by which I mean things I create and leave behind that I make with the idea that they are lasting work. For example, this book was written in such a way, and the contents are such, that if someone picks up this book 100 years from now, it won't have aged. The experience of reading will be as worthwhile then, and the language used is such 
that it won't have gone out of date. When I realized this thing about language use, when I became conscious of it many years ago, I started editing my own language use. I started cutting out all expressions that are ephemeral only of this moment, faddish expressions that will soon go out of date, and if you put them in your work, it will harm the longevity of that work. David Lynch is magnificent in this area. He uses language in a timeless way, both when speaking and in his work. It will be as fresh a hundred years from now and longer because he uses language in a lasting way, which is future-proof. For many years, I'd been aiming to create something that would encapsulate who I am to the extent that if I disappeared now, if the curtain came down for me today, then if someone who had never met me would pick up this book, Art and Love, Volume 1, they would get a sense of what things mattered to me, things that had warmed me and helped me in life. The reason those things matter isn't because of my ego. They matter because they are things that I know to have lasting value. I want to point out those kinds of things and leave behind clues for others to follow also. The title is Art and Love. The original working title was Art Love because that was the briefest encapsulation of the idea that I could think of. It was to be appreciations and positive things and passing on things that I know to have worth. Not just something that passes some time, but something that will actually add to the substance of a person's life who takes the trouble to seek those things out and go one-on-one -on -one with them. The best way to explore anything is not through someone else's analysis. That's why I don't analyze things in this book. Many of the chapters are very short. That's by design. I wanted the book to be light. That doesn't mean insubstantial, just as a book of poetry can have great substance, while most of it is, of course, white space. Many poetry books are laid out this way. Less can really be more. There are 124 chapters, which incidentally adds up to the number 7, if you count the numbers together. 1 plus 2 plus 4, that's 7. And that's going to be the number of chapters in all these books. Each of them was the result of years of work. This book has been in the making for more years than I can be sure about. At least a decade when I first started aiming towards something like this. But my aim was for the final product to be as light as possible, with as little text as I could use to express each of these thoughts or feelings or memories or inspirations or ideas. That's why there are a few chapters that are just a single sentence. That's because if I had added more to that one single sentence instead of leaving it at that, 
I would have harmed the value of that chapter because everything was already said in that one sentence, which was a product of years of thinking about something. This is a thing about art and expression that's not necessarily widely understood, namely the fact that by adding more to something, you can actually be taking away its value or diminishing its value, maybe not taking it away altogether. But for example, if you have a scene in a film or TV series and there's not much dialogue or maybe there's not any dialogue, it can be enough and better that way. Whereas if you add more stuff into it out of insecurity, you can be distracting from the experience of that scene. If you have the characters just babbling to fill the empty space, then you may already have taken a misstep in your thinking because it's not empty space. If you have anything at all on the stage or in front of the camera or in a scene or on the page of a book and so on, it's not empty. Imagine a theatre stage. If you put one thing on the stage, that's already an event. If the curtain opens on a single object, it immediately gets your mind going. What is that object? Why is it there? What's its meaning in this story, in this world? Then, if you add another object or another person, they could be persons also, the audience's mind starts working again. What is the relationship of the two objects or people? Why are they here and in this moment? Then you add a third object. Now the possibilities and your imaginative combinations multiply. You can draw a line between each of these objects from one to the other. You can imagine two of them having some connection. The third one may be an outside thing and so on. But if you keep doing this beyond a certain point where it's at an ideal level of detail, if you add a thousand things on the stage, it is still something, of course, and it is all those things, but it's a jumble. You certainly won't be able to consider the combinations in such a clean and imaginative way as if there were only a few things or people. That's one reason why theatre is such an exciting form. You can really use this power of simplicity to fire up the imagination. This is also the reason why I'm often more fascinated and interested in clean, simple, dadaistic or surreal set designs. Naturalistic can be good too. It's appropriate for some stories. So of course I don't shut out anything, but what you can do with something that has symbolic value, that's fantastic and inspiring. To get back to Art and Love, Volume 1, my aim was to say about each of these things only enough to share what I wanted to share and then get off the stage rather than going on about it and destroying the value of what I had already said. Each of these chapters went through 
a long process of creation, but the end result is as few words as I possibly could use for them for each of the chapters. This will be an ongoing series. Whenever I have an idea or feeling or something I can capture in a short chapter that fits this series, I'm going to do it. It is art and love. I didn't want to limit the topic only into art. Some chapters are about wider life questions. But for me, art and love covers everything. All of life. So in this way, this is kin to this podcast, where I allow myself to talk about anything I want. But whereas this podcast, of course, is impromptu, I never write anything down ahead of time. I'm speaking extemporaneously. Art and Love is written and carefully ground down to its cleanest and sharpest possible form. Because I do want to get better at this, at podcasting also. I've been occasionally reading the first book of transcripts to see how the words appear on the page. It's a very different experience to read something than hear the very same words spoken. And it's illuminating. At times I wince because when I started podcasting, my brain was definitely needing some time to get used to this form of expression. I think I've really made progress, though, so there's less repetition of an unwanted nature. Sometimes I do want to repeat things, and that's part of the intention. And there's less rambling in an unconstructive way. So I believe book two will be better and sharper than book one, and I hope this will be true of every new volume. Anyone who has bought the paperback or the ebook, I also want to thank. If you'll bear with me through the series, I hope that this will add up to an interesting library, just as the art and love books are meant to. However, these are of course not my only creative endeavors. After I had completed Art and Love Volume 1, and once I had it actually in my hands, I felt I had arrived at a new level. It's only when seeing something in printed form, whether you just print out something yourself from your home printer or have it printed as a book, I find that only then can you really tell the value, the real nature of what you've written. While something is only still text on a computer or tablet or even phone, it stands next to so much ephemeral text and content that you can't really tell what it is you've written. And when I had this book in my hands, I could honestly say that this is a worthwhile book, and if I did disappear just now, I would have left behind an essence of myself, of the good things that I had been blessed and fortunate to find in life and that I had passed on in this way. I wouldn't disappear without a trace because this book would be there when I'm no longer here to say these things. 
That's why each chapter that I write and each book that I publish will make me feel more at peace with myself as well as with life in general. It's important to create a legacy, I feel. I hope that one day my legacy will also take another form. I hope one day I'll have a family and a happy family life in a warm house. I mentioned in one of the first season episodes that I would like to live in a beautiful home, maybe two floors, and maybe on a hill, not in the middle of a city, somewhere more peaceful, where children could also play peacefully. That reminds me of a memory that I just want to share here, because I was thinking of it, and it was quite moving to me. The second time I went to Iceland, so this would have been 2018 or somewhere around there, I was once just shopping at a grocery store. I was feeling dejected and desolate, and I heard the voice of a child that was so innocent and pure that it made me choke up, because I don't remember hearing that kind of pure child's voice in Finland in a long time. I could just tell from that child's voice that she, I believe it was she, she has grown up in a really good world with a good family and in a country where childhood is still possible. I think in many countries childhood isn't as possible as it is in Iceland. It may be possible in parts of Finland, but there are things in culture or in how the parents run the family's life or all kinds of influences that may be depriving children of a very important thing, a real childhood of the kind that I remember having. I did have a real childhood for the first 12 years of my life. I lived a kind of golden existence and that fortified me for life and enabled me to find magic in many things, in many places, and it's been something, when I look back on it, I'm very grateful for it. My parents moved to this small town where it was possible to have that kind of childhood, and they moved there in great part just for that reason, so that kind of life would be possible. And that's a huge gift to have had that. And in that supermarket in Iceland, I felt grateful to know that there are still places and families in this life where children can actually be children for a time. That doesn't mean that bad things don't happen. In fact, Iceland has domestic problems like any other country does. There are things like child abuse and so on. But I could tell just from the sound of that child's voice that she hadn't experienced anything like that. You know, you can tell so much from just a voice or from even a photograph. You can intuit things in a moment, in a flash, if you're just open to that. Intuition isn't a magical thing. It's not something supernatural. It's 
the intellect and emotion working in that moment faster than your conscious mind can follow. Your conscious mind can then catch up and try to figure out the things that your intuition did in an instant, although you might still not capture all of it. You can just tell things this way. Now I'm going to move quite fast. I want to cover several different and disparate topics. I recently had the great pleasure of finally seeing No McDonald's Netflix series. No McDonald has a show. I have been saving that up, having loved his earlier indie podcast called No McDonald Live, which was available at least the last time I checked on the Internet Archive. The Netflix show is just wonderful. Almost all of them are my favorite episodes, so it's very difficult to put one over the other. It's compelling, like David Letterman said of Norm's earlier video podcast. It's also real in a way that I don't feel many talk shows are. You never know what will happen, and there are moments that take you by surprise with the warmth and the serious communication happening between the people. Norm is not one to follow some formula. He'll relate to the individual he is talking to, not seeing them as just the guest this time. The ending of the Jane Fonda episode took my breath away. That's fantastic and what a knockout moment. I love Jane Fonda's reaction there. Michael Keaton clearly had a great time. He's laughing red-faced through a lot of it and he and Norm seemed to get along really well. Drew Barrymore, that was another episode where there was such warmth from both of them and between them that it was unlike talk shows almost ever are. I use the word warm a lot but I don't think I use it unwarrantedly. I think human warmth is the most important quality that a person can have. Watching these episodes had me smiling virtually throughout, also laughing often but the smiling is the even more important part. This is a thought that Norm MacDonald himself has expressed very well, and I'm leaning on that. I had not thought of it until I saw him mention it in Norm MacDonald Live, that it's one thing to make someone laugh, it's another thing to make someone smile. I believe the intention is that laughing is great and it's wonderful to be able to laugh, and to be really made to laugh so you don't get a choice in the matter. You have to laugh because something is so funny. That's, you know, real laughter and that's real humor there. But to be left smiling helplessly, you just can't help smiling because of what you are experiencing while watching something. That's an even greater gift. Some comedians may provoke a laugh out of you. But after that, you feel a bit bummed out or it doesn't leave you smiling. And to me, that's then on a definitely lower level than what I have found in the comedy of Norm MacDonald. He enjoys what he does so clearly that you can't help but start smiling when following 
his exchanges and um, appearances on talk shows and various uh, radio or podcast interviews. And it's quite stunning, actually, to realize how rare it is to have a comedian who really finds their own material funny. I think that's the most important quality, really, or an important criterion, because I can think of many comedians who don't ever even crack a smile on stage. You, the listener, can probably think of many comedians also who don't even seem to be enjoying it. They go on stage, if we are thinking of stand-up comedy now, they look sour all the way through, they don't seem to be enjoying it, they complain and complain about stuff, and often there's anger, so it's like a therapy session for them. And they aren't provoked to laughter by their own material. I think that's then a sign that something isn't the way it's supposed to be. If you don't laugh at your own stuff, then maybe you are not really doing that job well. Granted, maybe they laugh at it when they're by themselves, but if there's never any sign of that when they are performing, then I feel there's something missing. I love it when No MacDonald can't help but laugh at something that he said, or when he's so delighted by something another person present says. That's another thing. He really loves a good joke or comment from anyone. He's not petty like many comedians who think of it as a competition, that they want to be the number one person in the situation, and if someone makes a really funny comment, then that's somehow a threat. Of course, I think that's nonsense, and, you know, that's not how anyone should see it. Back to David Lynch. Some of the warmest music ever is on the Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me soundtrack. This was one of the first CDs I ever bought. Among the first were that and the soundtrack to the TV series. For many of the first years of my childhood, I didn't have a CD player. They existed already. They entered the market in the early 1980s. But only later on, when I was already in my teens, did I get a CD player. Those two soundtracks were among the first CDs I got. And recently I was listening to the Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me soundtrack on Spotify and I was stunned again by how much warmth there is there. The film is an astounding and often shocking mix of the beautiful and the dark and the light and the disturbing and everything in between. It's a real work of art and it's strong enough that it can give you a panic attack if you're feeling particularly vulnerable when watching it and if you're not prepared. But the beauty in it is as strong as the darkness. I've mentioned this before in this podcast, but I can't stress enough how much I admire that quality in David Lynch's work. The light is as powerful as the dark. Some directors only dwell in the dark and they don't have the warmth or light in them. With David Lynch, it's clear he does. He's actually one of the warmest people that I know of. 
he speaks in a kind of often deadpan kind of feeling voice. Sorry, this was a completely inadequate expression and was in no way meant to be denigrating. What I meant to say is that he has a kind of reserve, but he smiles and he reacts so spontaneously that it's obvious that he is extremely sensitive. And I've said this also before, he is one of the most emotionally intelligent directors and artists. He could not have created such human warmth and suffering in his works without being extremely sensitive. Sensitivity has two sides, but they are necessary sides of that coin. It enables you to create meaningful stuff, but of course you are also more vulnerable when things affect you more than they do more jaded people. But that's the deal. I go back to this idea of simplicity again when I say that Angelo Badalamenti, with whom David Lynch worked on Twin Peaks in a close collaboration, their music composed by Angelo Badalamenti with David Lynch's all-important direction and guidance is some of the finest music that I know, and I don't mean only soundtrack music. When I said that the Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me music is some of the warmest music ever, I didn't mean only in the realm of soundtracks. I mean in any realm. These people speak from the heart. All the people I admire really do. David Lynch, Angelo Badalamenti, Noam MacDonald, Vangelis, Ray Bradbury, Hildur, Christine Torstensen, many others. And I believe that they have all gone through a process that involved painful experiences that nevertheless also shaped them in such ways that the result was great artists. No amount of books or no amount of courses or time spent in school could give that most essential quality, that warmth and ability to speak directly and without guile, to aim for that truthfulness. That's the ultimate guide for art and love and life. Another topic, Kurt Swan. Kurt Swan was an artist who, more than anyone else, created the human side of Superman, the superhero. He worked for DC, most visibly from the 50s to the 80s. In the mid-80s, something unconscionable happened. DC simply turned its back on him because then they revamped Superman. They brought in John Byrne and Marv Wolfman to start the story of Superman all over again. Kurt Swan was then considered outmoded, so they simply didn't involve him with Superman anymore. And that is tragic and just wrong that that happened, especially because his work was so gentle that he deserved much better. I would say that out of any comics published by DC, 
involving Superman, Kurt Swan's faces are the kindest. The faces in his work are the kindest and most human that you can imagine. A lot of superhero art is all about trying to look cool. I hope you heard the quotation marks because that's an adolescent aim. And cool in that case often means trying to look aggressive and like someone that can handle any situation. What's really cool is silent strength. Strength that doesn't need to prove itself to anyone. Grimacing and screaming and bulging your muscles is lame. That's not cool. But of course superhero comics became largely like that. I wanted to make this comment for a long time about superhero comics and superhero films. For a long time now, the comics have been pretty much worthless. And I want to put this thought out there for the benefit of anyone who didn't grow up with the comics when they were still good, back when some quality work was still done with them and before the keys to the asylum were handed to some very juvenile minds who messed up many of these characters in the comics. Younger people who have seen many Marvel and DC movies, they will have seen a lot of quality material because those actually had a lot of work go into them from enough good people that the results were often worthwhile and they were concentrated enough to create satisfying experiences with most of these films for anyone open to this kind of storytelling. But if you then try to go to reading the comics, it's like jumping from a grand hotel to a dung heap with broken glass all over and more unmentionable things. Because the comics are no longer a priority for the people who own them, these characters, I mean. The comics are now just an afterthought. They don't produce much money for Marvel and DC anymore. The films are the main thing and the merchandising associated with them. That's the financial reality. This is, of course, the opposite of how it used to be until the turn of the 2000s. There used to be very few good superhero movies. There were many attempts made, but they simply didn't have what it takes. And the thing about Marvel and DC Comics is that they are not meant to give you in any single issue a satisfying experience. They are just meant to give you something that will make you buy the next issue and the next issue. And the continuity in them is an absolute mess that I don't think anyone should be wasting their time on. Life has so many more worthwhile things that it's sad if someone actually tries to delve into, not sad as an attempt, I'm not insulting anyone, but it will end up being a waste of your life if you try to delve into the X-Men books and figure out all that continuity that gets rewritten with every issue and reset and jumbled and there is no grand master plan with them. And if you just pick up some random comic book involving Wolverine or the X-Men or the Avengers or something, it's very unlikely that you'll pick a really good, satisfying one that will leave you as fulfilled in that kind of way as one of the good Marvel movies, for example. I want to say that those of us who have 
long time experience with the comics from the times when they still had some value to them. I can say that the stuff out there now is trash and yes, it's not worth really spending much time on. So I don't wonder that the comics are doing badly because they simply don't give you satisfying standalone experiences. The art is often a complete mess. The skill to lay out pages in an interesting way has been largely lost. You open a page and often it's walls of text and just people standing around and no panel keeps you interested to move on to the next panel. It's a really bad sign if you open a comic book spread of two pages and your heart sinks because it will be a chore to get through that. It should never feel like that. You shouldn't be feeling lukewarm about the art. You should be excited and thrilled and fascinated by also beautiful things. Beautiful things aren't on the agenda for these comics. Birds barely exist in superhero comics. Windows sometimes barely exist. Backgrounds, places, geography, environment, natural phenomena don't usually exist in these worlds. There's a famous quote by an artist called Rob Liefeld. Alan Moore said of the name once, there's a name to conjure with. Rob Liefeld once said, who cares about windows? As part of some conversation about how there should have been a window in a panel, as I recall the context of this. To answer that, who cares about windows? puts him in a world that I'm utterly uninterested in. If a window isn't an interesting concept to someone, then I don't think I could ever have a meaningful exchange with that person. Another topic again. I learned Russ Cochran died earlier this year, in early 2020. Russ Cochran is a name that probably few will recognize who listen to this podcast. He was the single person who kept EC Comics, not DC Comics, I'm saying EC Comics, alive through the decades by reprinting it in various forms. And most definitively in the 90s with facsimile reprints. What are EC Comics? Think Tales from the Crypt. But don't think of that TV series because it wasn't really faithful to the spirit of those horror comics from the 50s that EC Comics made. They had titles like Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, The Haunt of Fear, and then science fiction titles called Weird Science, nothing to do with the film of that name, Weird Fantasy, and Weird Science Fantasy, and then assorted other titles involving detective or crime stories and war stories, and later on other things. Easy Comics was the first comics outfit to produce a really solid, genuinely good and consistent line of comics. Until then, there had been the big two, DC and Marvel, but their stuff was mostly horrible, unworthy junk. It was done by people who didn't want to be doing those comics Back then, comics were considered the lowest of the low, and superhero comics even lower than some other types of comics. So they were doing it for very low pay. They 
often didn't want to be doing those series. They just wanted to complete their pages and get the paycheck, and they had to slave over story after story of uninspired material. But with EC, which really came more definitively into being in the early 50s, they had already existed in the days before that, but that's when they launched their lineup that included Tales from the Crypt and these other comics. And they featured a very select group of artists who you could tell were proud of the work they were able to do for this company. Without these comics, Stephen King might not have become quite the author he became. These comics also featured adaptations of stories by Ray Bradbury. I could go on at length about each of the artists, but I want to mention just one of them, Graham Ingalls, who became known by his nickname, Ghastly. If you know the comic book artist and fine artist, Bernie Wrightson, I believe that without Graham Ingalls as an influence, Bernie Wrightson would have been very different. Graham Ingalls was the most creative out of those artists working for EC Comics in what he did with the layouts and panel borders. He would often place items between the panels or do clever things where the edge of a swamp would extend from one panel to the other where it was a different moment in each panel but it was blended in beautifully with that kind of in-scene detail and he individually drew the edges of all the speech and occasional thought balloons and the captions. Others mostly used just straight lines and did the traditional predictable speech bubble shapes, but Graham Ingalls would lovingly render these spiky, expressive borders even to the speech bubbles, and he had a fantastic sense of humor. One of the narrators of these horror comics was the old witch, and Graham Ingalls was the artist who did more of the old witch's stories than anyone else. And he added some great humor, like in one story about an undertaker. He had the old witch just raising the lid of a coffin and peeking from inside and leering at the reader. Or in a carnival tale, she would be shown licking on ice cream, and so on. Compared to lesser horror comics, this kind of thing elevated those easy comics. Humor doesn't hurt horror, it can really help it, and it's good to know that the artists working on this often grim and macabre and uh, sometimes really disturbing material, they have these moments of being able to smile while doing them. Unfortunately, these comics fell into disrepute because of a witch hunt about the influence of comics on young people. And that's why Tales from the Crypt and the Others ended in the mid-1950s. Easy Comics mainly became the publisher of MAD. They also created MAD magazine. The same people created MAD magazine. And a very unfortunate consequence of this fall from Grace was that Graham Ingalls withdrew into seclusion and took solace in alcohol and from what we can tell because he didn't 
gave interviews and he just withdrew from the world. He apparently felt ashamed of the work he had done, this magnificent art that often has these really human moments of humor that just make me smile when I see those. He believed he had done something bad with those comics. I appreciate an artist thinking about the responsibility and the consequences of their work, but I wish Graham Ingalls had lived long enough to see these comics become widely appreciated and warmly remembered by people like Steven Spielberg and Stephen King and others who paid tribute to them in various contexts and ways. For example, Steven Spielberg wrote the foreword to one of the hardcover collections that Russ Cochran published in the 2000s. George Lucas wrote another introduction, another foreword for these hardcovers. If anyone wants to go back to the history of comics and if horror and science fiction and fantasy and imaginative stories appeal to you, then the easy comics are like the earliest point that it makes sense to go to for a deep dive. Because honestly, after extensive experience in my lifetime of material produced by DC and Marvel in the first half of the 20th century, I can say with confidence that there really are no worthwhile stories from those companies virtually at all. There's no great treasure waiting to be uncovered if you start going through old Batman or Superman or Captain America stories from the 40s or late 30s. But with EC Comics, they are a satisfying body of work that's been reprinted in its entirety. And they actually are worth delving into, even for an adult of a mature mindset. As long as you keep in mind that they were created for young people mainly, yet you will find in them also many depths, and the art in particular is something that you won't find anywhere else, or I should say, in few other comics after those times. And most especially, you won't find that kind of standalone entertainment from DC or Marvel these days. All the easy comics stories were self-contained. They had these running characters, the narrators, the Crypt Keeper, the Vault Keeper, and the Old Witch for the horror comics, but there was no continuity. Each story was a short story, I should have mentioned this earlier. They are short stories in comic book form of six to eight pages, with very few exceptions, shorter or longer than that. They told, in that short space, self-contained stories, one after the other, and so many of them are worthwhile. Whereas you can read thousands of pages of what Marvel and DC are doing these days. I wouldn't recommend it, and I don't do it myself, but you can do that and still not get a feeling of this was a really good experience, something with a beginning, middle and end that then lets you go on with your life and on to other things. Another jump. In the October 27th weather report, David Lynch mentioned Chris Isaac's song Wicked Game. I also enjoy seeing his MacBook Pro in some of these videos.
The third season of Twin Peaks also featured Max with several of the characters. I really liked seeing that. It made me feel a bit more involved as I'm an all-Apple person these days. People often give Apple a hard time and denigrate Mac or iPad users. I am not in favor of that kind of thinking. The thing is that for professionals in many fields, Apple simply creates the best tools that also integrate best with each other, with things like AirDrop, and the variety of tools that are available in the realms of audio production, video production, and more is simply much greater. The best selection is for Apple products. So there's a very pragmatic reason to use them if possible to afford them, which I myself couldn't for many years. From that, I get a bridge to mention something I am extremely relieved about and also quite proud about because it's through very hard work. I've been blessed with a lot of translating work and many great projects in that realm over these last several months. And the reason I haven't been podcasting regularly is because I needed to invest a lot of time in that. And that time investment was really worthwhile because as a result of it, I am finally going to be free of all financial obligations I have still had hanging over my head. I'm finally able to clear the deck for myself. And from then on, every month will be easier and nicer and less stressful and will leave me more time for my own creative stuff. I'll be able to breathe easier, walk lighter. I feel it's a physical burden off my shoulders to finally get rid of these financial obligations. I didn't think I would be able to do it so quickly, so you can imagine how grateful I am that this is how it turned out. Only a few months ago, I thought it wouldn't be possible this quickly. No way. Within a month or two, I'll be all in the clear. And that means that from then on, I'll be able to just live more freely and have a better quality of life in every way. That is something I've been working towards for a long time. When several years ago, I decided about setting my life in order in all the ways that I needed to still work on. This is one of the main points I've been working towards. I haven't just been taking it easy or wasting time fruitlessly. So I will really be turning over a new leaf next year, free of all these things. Speaking of which, the first episode of the third season of this podcast will come out on the 1st of January. 2021. I'm going to go back to a regular schedule again. I've often hoped I could do daily episodes, and at some point I might even try that. But to be more sure that I can do it, I have in mind to do new episodes on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday each week. That will leave me one whole day to transcribe the episodes also for myself which is something I want to do after each episode. So each book is being made also in real time. There's also going to be more structure in the third season. 
I've been building towards that also, and I've had to do some preparatory work, some research, and setting some pieces in place in order to synchronize things related to different fields of art, which I'll then be able to integrate into every episode in a structured and consistent way. So the third season will be a step forward again. Now about my music. I'm in the final stages with an Iceland symphony. I always prefer to let creation speak for themselves as much as possible, but without feeling that I violate that principle, I can say that it seems to me that with a form like the symphony, it makes sense to make a work of that type only if you feel you can reinvent it in some way or make it your own to do something with it that hasn't been done before. That's been my aim with this, so it is definitely not in the form of any previous composer's work. The nature of it is the way I felt I needed to do it. But there's still a symphonic intent behind it. This is a question that many far more experienced composers than me have commented on. Many years ago, BBC Music Magazine did a whole issue dedicated to the symphony, and it featured a kind of roundtable about what is a symphony. How do you decide that something is a symphony rather than, for example, a fantasia or a tone poem? or even a concerto or something. There's no clear definition of symphony, and that's a good thing. Symphony simply means sounding together, but there's something about the aim that needs the word symphony rather than any of the other terms for large-scale compositions or long pieces, usually consisting of several smaller pieces that are related in some way. Without, again, violating any of my principles about this, I can say that I'm interested in fragmentation and multiplicity more than having one huge, logically consistent, logically inevitable work, which used to be the ideal a long, long time ago for something called symphonic There are new ways to do things and to break things up in such a way that it still creates a whole. It can be as refreshing as the fragmentation of, for example, the third season of Twin Peaks. But enough said, when I publish the sheet music, I have in mind to write a brief introduction that says a little something about my intention without still prescribing anything. My hope with everything I create is that people will feel free enough to have any reaction to the work. I don't look for a single reaction to anything that I do. I will be as okay with someone shaking their head in disbelief and walking out if or when there's a performance of the symphony as for them to sit interested or to find it funny or to find it serious. All reactions are valid, and my hope is not to create something that controls your emotions in 
a micromanaging way. I don't want to prescribe when someone should feel elated or entertained to the point of laughter or upset or disturbed. I'm really fascinated by art that can leave so much room for the experiencer that those moments can happen at different points in time. This kind of possibility goes back to Samuel Beckett and Philip Glass has pointed it out. I mentioned this in one of the chapters in Art and Love Volume 1 that with a certain kind of work that Samuel Beckett cleared the way for those moments can happen at different points for different experiences, different audience members. And to me, that's really a thrilling thought. The knowledge that this is possible to create art like that, which also happens with David Lynch's work, that is something that informs everything I do. With Art and Love Volume 1, I hope that someone who leaps through it can have their own experience of it. There's no obligation to read it from cover to cover. It can be lived through. And I would imagine that some chapters can seem amusing to some people and serious to others. This was easily the longest of my podcast episodes. I wanted to cover yet more ground, but this seems a natural place to leave it. I had a suspicion that this was going to be the case, and it's become even clearer as I've continued making this podcast. A lot of my commentary is such that I hope that it will have value beyond its own time. I admire something that Thoreau achieved with his journal. People still read his journal. Some of his language use is now a kind of obstacle to getting into it. That's true of surprisingly many poets also. Very few poets had the gift of simplicity that would make their poems timeless. Thoreau kept a journal through most of his life and recorded all his everyday thoughts and ideas and anything that occurred to him in that. In my own way, and of course without copying anything of his style, because... This is my life and these are my thoughts and things that interest me and things that occupy my mind and heart. I have wanted to create something like that. I hope that sometime far in the future there may be someone who is interested enough to listen to some of these. So even as I am addressing people in the present, I often imagine some of my friends who I know have listened to this podcast or I imagine others I'm not in touch with and I hope that some of what I say may one day reach them. But I also, at the same time, often imagine a future listener and I try to talk about things in such a way that it would have value decades or even a century from now, if not longer. That's why I'm calling these things legacy works. We live in an amazing time when everyone who lives in one of the countries where this is possible, anyone can create anything and actually have it out there. That's 
not at all how it was in the past. There were gatekeepers and guardians in every realm of art, and you had to serve them and please their whims. We now live in a time, I was very fortunate to be born into a time where I can publish exactly what I want and edit it only myself. All the words are exactly like I want them. And no one can say I can't say that. Same with this podcast. I can record exactly what I want and everything else that I do. And that's really worth being grateful for. It's also a responsibility. Now we have the freedom that for thousands of years people have wanted. We must use it. I know many creative people and I know they can do really amazing things as long as they simply decide I'm going to do it. That's the only thing that is needed. That's the only step. I want to do this. And then you start taking the steps. To a future listener, I'm grateful that you are listening to this. To a present listener, I'm grateful that you are listening to this. I hope that this gives something. I hope that this strange person recording in Finland who doesn't have a lot of friends in real life I hope that I'm able to find my way towards creating things that have the kind of value I know to be possible. Now imagine three asterisks centered here and there'll be one more segment and then another set of three asterisks and then my sign off for this season. There's one thing I've been meaning to do for a long time. I want to tell the story of the creation of a poem And this story also relates to intuition. It's one of the most impressive and actually astounding moments that I've had when it comes to trusting your intuition. This is how it happened. When we were creating the game called Serena, for which I was one of the four writers, out of us four writers I wrote more lines of dialogue than the others, but All of us contributed importantly. The leader of the project and the creator of the plot was Agustin Cordes, who is now creating Asylum. It was his story and we served his story. I could relate to many things in that story, so I really threw myself into it. And I had the time to do that, so I wrote and wrote and wrote. I also wrote the two letters that appear in the game and then a poem that you see in four verses on a wall and the verses appear during the different stages of that short story that can be completed in about an hour or less even. I'm being careful in how I word things here because we makers of that game made a pact not to explain away the story. We don't want to take the exploration of the story away from the audience. So with that in mind, I'm not sharing too much about this. I did have a free hand with the poem as long as it fulfilled the function of giving a certain clue in the first verse. I felt it really needed to be something with parallels or connections without laying it down in such a way that you would have to make those connections. But they are there. There is, of course, a parallelism 
you can see different connections. This poem took a long time to get to. At first, I was only thinking of, okay, we need that clue. And because there was no set agenda how the rest of the poem would be, as long as it included a clue. I even came across a poem by William Blake that, eerily enough, included two of the clues that appear in the game, including the one needed. And so I thought for a moment of possibly adapting that in such a way that, of course, the main character would make it clear that this is actually a Blake poem, but there's something strange about it. It's not the way he remembers it. That was one very early idea. Of course, that didn't feel quite right. What was clearly more ideal was to have an original poem. And I felt that this was super important to get right. It couldn't be anything mediocre. And it needed the right idea, first of all. Otherwise, it would be just spinning things out of nothing. And that's no good. It needs the right idea at the core. And so I racked my brains and I virtually pulled at my hair and I walked around in my apartment. And then, for some reason that I didn't know, I felt like I should take out these old computer game magazines from the 80s that I love from a company called Newsfield. They published magazines called Crash for the Sinclair Spectrum and Zap 64 for Commodore 64. That was the first magazine of theirs that I discovered in 1990 and I subsequently collected all the issues. And it was really important to me as a lifeline in my youth. Subsequently, I collected all the magazines they published. So I had no idea why in that moment when I needed to be creating the poem, I would start leafing through these magazines. I had done that many times in the past, but I did not know what I would find. And I had no sure feeling that I would find anything there. But out of all the things I could have done, out of all the books or magazines or newspapers or internet sites or whatever I might have gone to in search of inspiration, I found the perfect thing within an issue of two. I was just leafing through them. And I came across a review of a game called Tirnanog. Tirnanog is a Celtic otherworld. This was released sometime in the mid-1980s. And in that article about this game, in this newsfield magazine, they used the phrase, the land of youth and beauty. The land of youth and beauty. In that moment, it came in a flash of inspiration what that is. The land of youth and beauty Tirnanog is a place where, if you go there, into this fairy realm, time will pass in the world outside, and then when you return from there, maybe all the people you knew will have died, or at least grown old. I knew then that that is a metaphor for being in love. Being in love is the land of youth and beauty. Because when you're in love, you feel young, no matter what your age is. 
and life is beautiful. Everything is more beautiful when you are in love. Then I wanted something more specific. The characters that I ended up using for the poem don't appear in this game. I looked up things related to Tirnanog and Celtic mythology and I very quickly came across two characters and a legend that existed about them. I didn't create the legend, but I told my own version of it. I didn't create the main legend about them, but I did create my own telling of it, which is something, of course, that happens with myths. All myths get told and retold. Every version is free to do whatever the teller feels is necessary. The characters are the poet Oshin and Niav, a fairy character, one of the fae. The myth has it that the mortal poet Oshin falls in love with Niav and goes with her to the fairy realm, to Tirnanog, the land of youth and beauty. It does not have a happy ending. Here's my reading of those four verses. I created for it a specific rhyme scheme that I came up with, again purely intuitively. It needed an emphasis on the last line of every verse. The rhyme scheme has it that the rhyming lines are in each of these 1 and 6, 2 and 3, 4 and 5, and 7 and 8. Each of the four verses has eight lines, and each verse represents the stage of the game at that point, and each verse is visible only during that stage. So there's no moment in the game where you can see the whole poem at once. Here's the poem. Come, love, with peace in your heart, said Niav of the ice blue eyes. Ride with me, shed your mortal guise. Here is our mount, a snow-white mare. Come, Oshin, to my gardens fair. In the land of youth, ply your art. Ours shall be the cycle of days. Ours, sun and sky and rainbow ways. Years passed, no tears fell, no death knell reached the golden shores they trod. Here dwelled once mortal and god, Oshin, of flesh, Niav of the fay, Till reason's light brought disarray, broke through imagination's shell. Are all my earthly loves beyond recall, cried Oshin, lost, lost as I am in thrall. Changeable man, insolent wretch, who was it made the first overtures, named love unending as time endures? Even as we rode across my father's realm, the mystic sea burnished thy poet's helm. Know this, scribe it in thy final sketch, spell thy love without fault to the fay or end thy life with feet of mortal clay. With a twist of wind, Oshin fell hard on his homeland ground, watched his mount flee, looked up and found a silent banshee. Crone of silver hair, how came I here? Stranger as all, on time's rocking bier, thou art old, but recall to me a bard I knew in youth. Now make way, man's husk, I go bury my past in the crimson dusk. This is also what often happens with love stories in reality. The people in love are so enamored with each other 
that they live in their own special magic circle without them realizing it. Time passes quickly outside that realm, outside that magic circle. People grow old and die. Some disappear forever. And if the spell of love is broken and the lovers fall hard back on their homeland ground, they may find they've lost time that they'll never get back. This is an old style poem. The style needed to be archaic to give it the right feel. In most of the poems that I'm going to publish, I won't be using this kind of style except in rare cases where that's appropriate. I still marvel at how that inspiration came about. I had lived through those magazines many times before, but I was aiming for no specific thing while leafing through those pages. I remembered that this game exists, but I wasn't looking for it. The land of youth and beauty is the state of being in love. That is what we needed for this poem. And the inspiration for it came from an intuitive action of going to magazines and finding there the perfect inspiration. It was so appropriate, that story involved in that legend, to make this clear, it's not part of this game. The story of the game is entirely different, and I didn't use the story exactly the way it is, but I did stay faithful to it. The poem is entirely my wording and my creation. By following that intuition completely blindly, without knowing why I was going to those magazines, I found just the right thing. And I do believe that my subconscious knew where to direct me. Somewhere in my mind, all that text had trickled down as I had gone through those issues before. And while my conscious mind is too sluggish and too practically oriented to have known why I was going to that magazine, it provided one of the really strong proofs of why it's a good idea to just go with intuitions. That poem might never have come into being without these magazines from the 1980s and 1990s that were an important part of my childhood. And for that, I want to thank the creators of those magazines also, Roger Keane and Oliver Frey in particular, the creative powerhouses behind those magazines, along with many other people also. Now, there's that thread of three asterisks and it's time to head on into the Christmas time that I hope for many of my listeners will be a magical and good time. For many people I know it's been a really hard year. Here's hoping the next one will make up for all that and more. I will hit the ground running with episode 3.1 on the 1st of January 2021 by which time the second book of transcripts will have been published also. I'm looking forward to continuing work on the screenplays and stage plays that I have. One of my best moments of 2020, which was, let's just say, a very lonely year for me. But one of the best moments was one of creativity when a connection happened between a piece of music I just finished then and a stage play that 
I have partly written. Some scenes are definitely in their final form. I know not to mess up those scenes. What happened was that I realized a piece of music I had created the basic form of several years ago and that I then finished now in 2020 that was absolutely perfect for the final scene of that stage play. So it will include this composition. I also feel that this composition, I feel like it's out of all the pieces of music I've created so far, it's the closest that somehow gets across a lot of my personality, who I am and what I'm about. So it's almost like my theme. If anything is dragging you down or keeping you from going into your future, a happy one, then changes may be needed. But don't be afraid of changes, would be my advice. You will be very grateful if there's a hard step you need to take that you know to be necessary. You will be grateful at some future point that you did it. You will be more yourself then. That's always a key thing to keep in mind. Do things that allow you to be more yourself than you've been before. Leave behind people who try to control what you can be. Something I've also said before, I am deeply grateful for having found the work of Noam MacDonald in early 2019. Since then, he has brought through the love of what he's doing and his enjoyment of it all and his genuine goodness of heart. He has shone a light into my life and made it possible to go on and in times when I thought there was no strength left to keep going. Since I'm pointing out things that give strength, I can say that through these plague times, one series I'm super grateful for also is Curb Your Enthusiasm. That became a wonderful relief to have in my life. And the hundred episodes or so went by so quickly, quicker than with any series I've watched. There's very few lulls in that series for me. It's like on a completely different level. There's only two sitcoms that I have never gotten tired of. Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. One of the great things about Curb Your Enthusiasm is that having seen it, you appreciate Seinfeld even more. It's a great contrast. It's like the supercharged version of Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm is. And when you go back to watch then Seinfeld also, you see more of his contribution specifically. And something that both these series have in common with each other and also the work of David Lynch. Yes, there are connections. And by the way, I hope No MacDonald may one day get to interview David Lynch. I would pay a lot of money for that to see that happen. What these three series have in common is that while you are watching them, you won't be thinking of your worries. This may sound trivial, but it's not trivial at all. It's super important. With most comedies, you can still keep worrying about your own things. You can be vaguely bored, you can be annoyed with the characters, 
but with a really good comedy or a really good series of another type like Twin Peaks, which, by the way, does have some of the best comedy anywhere. Uh, David Lynch also knows how to do that. When it occupies your mind so completely that you do get a release from your worries, that is one of the most healing things that can happen. It's not escape. It is breaking the circuit of stress in your brain, and that is super important to healing. You can't heal from a traumatic event, for example, if that circuit doesn't get broken as much as possible, you know, as often as you can. This is a scientific thing, and it's based on science, what I just said. Only by breaking the circuit, only by getting your mind genuinely to other things, can the healing process continue. And speaking of that, that's something I wish for everyone. If you listen through the whole thing, my many thanks. This was 2020 with Simosa Karyaltonen, and I hope you may join me also in 2021. A whole new year, a whole new adventures, and a new lease on life for us all. Merry Christmas, or other holiday that you may be celebrating, and a peaceful new year. I hope to see some of you next year. Good night, and take care.